Good morning. Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. Mark 16, we'll be reading this morning, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth. Lord, we praise you for the opportunity to traverse through the book of Mark, the gospel according to Mark, these many months. You have taught us so much through his pen, inspired by the Holy Spirit, And we praise you and we thank you for it. As we come to the end of this gospel, we ask that we would be changed by it, that we would be transformed more into the image of Christ, that we would follow your will for our lives more, and that we would be greater ambassadors for you in this world. Lord, open our eyes this morning and open our ears to hear your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1953, a theologian by the name of Rudolf Bultmann wrote a small work entitled Kerygma and Myth. Kerygma is a Greek word for proclamation or preaching. In his work, Bultmann outlines what he believes to be the inherent difficulties of the Christian or traditional Christian religion. He did this by attacking the historical claims of Scripture, specifically its supernatural elements. For Boltmann, the New Testament is specifically a blending together of Old Testament Jewish mysticism with first century Greco-Roman philosophy and culture. For Boltmann... He believes and taught that with the advances that we have seen in the past 500 years in science and reason, he would argue that mankind should turn away from the foolish myths of Scripture. Our advances have progressed greatly. After all, we live in a world where we know that it is round. We have sent men to the moon. 
We know that it's not flat anymore. We've seen advances in culture, advances in science. We've seen advances in medicine. We've lived through two world wars. We know a lot about death and life, inoculations, disease. He would say, how can we live in a world where we can walk into a building and turn on a light bulb and still believe the literal historical claims of Scripture? But, Boltman would say, that there are truths in Scripture, discernible truths in Christianity. But Christians need not to sacrifice their intellect to discover them. This is Boltman's word, not mine. So hopefully Tim will let me preach again. (laughs) As the Christian community, we must cast aside supernatural elements of Scripture and use the lessons it teaches us. He would say, quote, The only criticism of the New Testament that is relevant is that which is necessary for the modern man. Boltman wanted to get into scriptures and preach. This is why his book or writing was titled Kerygma and Myth and preach the truths of scripture that are hidden in the text. Here at Grace Fellowship, we believe in preaching the word week by week, but we preach the historical grammatical scripture. There are certainly spiritual truths, but Boltman was worried about getting to the kernel of truth that is in scripture by peeling away the husk of the grammatical and the historical event itself. Many people believe this today. You see this around us all the time. They're focused on the ethical things that we can learn from Scripture, the existential gospel, where the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man is promoted and lifted high by the world. It's a much easier pill to swallow just saying we need to get to the core of the message. This is called demythologizing Scripture. You can see how this will clash seriously with our passage this morning and many passages, but above all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is not what we preach here at Grace Fellowship, and it's not what we see in Holy Scripture. Let's turn quickly to 1 Corinthians 15. Pastor Tim read it this morning. But this is the gospel according to Paul. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ has died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day he rose, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred, and then he appeared to Paul himself. The resurrection is the center of the gospel. It's the center of our Christian religion. It goes so far to say, moving along in the chapter, if Christ has not been raised, 
then our faith is in vain. Our preaching is in vain. This kerygma is in vain if Christ has not truly been raised from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile. And we're still in our sins. But praise be to God, Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And he is the first fruits of And that we can have a living hope through the resurrection. I'm here to tell you this morning that with all my heart, I believe and know that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, rose bodily from the grave. And he sits at the right hand of the Father and the majesty on high. This is essential to the Christian gospel. This is the gospel. It's the main event We cannot separate the resurrection from what has come before. Christ's death and resurrection must be held together. If we dismiss the resurrection, it's like going to a concert and leaving before the headliner. It's like going to a fireworks display and not seeing a finale. One thing I love to do every summer is to go down to the Sanford Fireworks Spectacular. I love the heat. I love the, the sound. I love the American patriotic music, the red, white, and blue-blooded American that I am. It's one of the things that I love. But could you imagine if in the advertisement for the Sanford Fireworks Spectacular, if there was an asterisk that said, this year there's going to be no finale? That point where all of the fireworks go off at one time and all the children cover their ears. You smell the smoke and it lights up the night sky. I wouldn't go. I wouldn't bother. There would be no reason to bother going. And I don't believe that you would go either. The resurrection gives the cross its significance. If Christ did not raise from the dead, if he was not raised, we would not be here preaching this morning. He would just be another dead guy, another famous Elvis type in person. We would not be here preaching about him this morning as the people of God. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection point towards victory. His victory over sin and death, and ultimately our victory that we who are united to him take part in. As we examine our passage this morning on resurrection, I'm going to point out three elements that Mark brings to our attention. The devotion of the women in verses 1 through 5, the message of resurrection in verses 6 and 7, and finally, the response of resurrection in verse 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they may go and anoint him. The context of this is Jesus died at approximately 3 p.m. on a Friday. We know that the Sabbath is a Saturday. They would have been hurrying along in this process to go and prepare to observe the Sabbath rightly. These women who were devoted to Jesus Christ must have went to buy these spices at night. This story that Mark includes here is heavenly dependent on these women. They are a chain of custody, as you will, in Jesus' final days. 
If I was someone who was making up this story, as Tim mentioned last week, I wouldn't use the women. Their testimony would have been thrown out in a court of law. It would not even been regarded as truth. They had been following Jesus for a long time. If you look back to chapter 15, verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. His long trek to Jerusalem. They had been following. They are devoted to him. They love him. Not in an intimate romantic sense as you would have between a man and a woman who are in love. But they loved him as a teacher. After all, Jesus cast out seven demons from Mary Magdalene. This is recorded in Luke chapter 8. They've been following for many months, if not years. They brought spices to anoint him. This would have been for the intense odor where Jesus' body would have been decaying. They took care of the body. Jews did, some Jews, believe in resurrection. Now certainly, as they were approaching the tomb this morning, they did not believe that Jesus would be risen. But they did believe in resurrection. If we think of Jesus talking to Martha before Lazarus was raised, he said, Lazarus will rise. And she said, yes, I know, Lord, in the last day. There was some type of prophecy in the Old Testament. We, see, we think of Ezekiel 37. We think of Bones not being able to be held in Sheol in the Psalms. That the Jews believed in some type of future resurrection where they would be united to God. And they were seeking to honor the body. After all, Joseph of Arimathea, he did pour 75 pounds of aloe and myrrh and spices on the body of Jesus. But he was not part of their posse. He had not been walking with them. It was hurried, hurried in the action. The Lord put Joseph there in his providence to have Jesus a tomb that no one had laid in. But these women were going back to rightly honor the body of Jesus Christ. This is just like women of character, godly women who had been following Christ in his journey to Jerusalem. Uh, those of us who know that are married to godly women, women are always around in the tough times when all of the men have their heads stuck in the sand, either embarrassed or afraid. This is the character of godly women, ministering and take care, taking care of all of those details that need to happen. They had an intense and love, intense love and devotion for Christ. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, "Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb?" Now we need to be careful here when it comes to this verse. It has given a lot of scholars and Bible students heartburn because it doesn't appear at first glance to 
harmonize with the other gospel accounts. Mark says they went when the sun had risen. Matthew says that they went toward dawn. Luke says early dawn. And John says that Mary Magdalene went when it was still dark. So what's going on here? Differing details in the gospel. I'm here to tell you this morning that the core of the message is the same, even though the particulars are different. Pastor Tim has talked before about the harmonization of the Gospels and how it's akin to someone witnessing a car crash on opposite sides of the street with different tales or different accounts to what happened. I'm sure he's probably not the first that has used that analogy. This does not read like myth. This reads like a mystery or a newspaper reporter who is taking evidence and different, interviewing different individuals. One thing about harmony, um, as your music director here at Grace Fellowship, I understand the difference between harmony and melody, and many of you probably do as well. Melody is that line in music that you want to sing. It's, it's, it's the... the, the vocal line, amazing grace, or be thou my vision, have a very pronounced melody line. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. Everyone knows the melody line to these songs. Harmony are those notes in the background that promote the melody and make it more beautiful and more rich. The gospels harmonize perfectly And what they harmonize to is the gospel, which is the melody. The melody is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And each one of the gospels is harmonizing to make this message more beautiful and more rich. Mark's point here is to promote the risen Lord who has been raised by God. His point is that the women went to the tomb early in the morning. They came to anoint Jesus. They saw that the tomb was rolled away. Because Matthew says that there were two angels versus one, Mark doesn't say that there's not two. It talks about the one on the right that engaged with them and spoke with them. I believe there were two angels there. There were multiple women. Mary Magdalene likely went first, saw the empty tomb, went to tell the others that the body had been stolen, so you know she didn't believe that Jesus would rise, and then went back to the tomb. This does not discount Mark's gospel this morning. The sunrise is also different depending on who is interpreting it. A sunrise is not something that just happens like that. I went to work on Tuesday morning of this past week, and I went very early. I normally go early on Tuesdays, and it was pitch black. And I parked in my parking space, and I went inside to my office, and I dropped off my briefcase with my computer in it. And I was needed to go to the other building to grab something. And I went outside. I must have been inside for 30 seconds. And I went outside and it was daylight. Most beautiful sunrise I've seen in a while. 
I can only imagine what it was like for these women this morning going to the tomb in a sunrise, and they had certain expectations, but those expectations were shattered by the power of God. Just because one of the gospel accounts talks about the sun being up or sun being down, it makes no difference. It depends on who the interpreter is. I kind of laugh and chuckle here when it's, they're saying, who will roll away the stone? So they didn't even think about that. Who's going to roll away the stone? All of the men are in hiding. Who is going to roll away this stone? In the Lord's providence, the stone was rolled away so they could see what was inside or what was not inside. Mark's purpose here in showing that the tomb was rolled away is that this is an act of God. Matthew says that an angel physically rolled the tomb away, rolled the stone away. But it was in God's power and providence that this was to happen. And I'm here to tell you this morning that the stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so the women could see what was not in the tomb. And that's the body of Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus later would appear to his apostles and he would walk through walls in a room that was locked. His body was still corporeal. You could still feel it and touch it, but something had changed. It is the Lord God who rolled away the stone that morning in his purpose. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Matthew fills in a lot of the details here, Matthew and Luke. Mark isn't worried about what happened to the guards. He's not worried about them rolling around on the ground or going and bribing the Sanhedrin. He's worried about the core of the resurrection and that Jesus is gone. This is another evidence for us that this is not myth, is that there's no account of the resurrection itself. It's left out of all of the Gospels. If I was writing this as myth, I certainly would have put in how Jesus raised from the dead. There would have been lightning bolts inside of the tomb, or Jesus would have risen as Frankenstein's monster. This is not myth. This is evidence. We always look at repeated words in verses 4 through 7. Just take a look at all of the seeing language. These women looked up they saw the stone had been rolled away. They saw a young man sitting on the right. In the message, this young man said, See the place where he laid. Go to Galilee. There you will see him. They looked and they saw this. They saw a stone that was rolled away. They saw a young man. They saw an empty tomb. 
They would have likely seen the grave clothes of Jesus folded up and put to the side. One thing that I have struggled with in my Christian walk, I'm not ashamed to say, over the years as I've been younger and have matured, is the resurrection in general. I, I've, I've always believed or at least confessed that Jesus rose from the dead. But it's always confused me. I mean, what's so special about this? Lazarus rose from the dead, right? Uh, the Bible also talks about men coming out of tombs during the crucifixion. So what's so special about this resurrection? I think a good point of contrast here is to take a look at Lazarus's resurrection. Let's turn quickly to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, picking up in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, this is in Bethany, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone lay against it. Sound familiar? Jesus said, take the stone away. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that I, if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I, see this on account of the, I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his face, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is a very different resurrection than Jesus' resurrection. I find this funny again. Can you imagine this? This man coming out, <laughs> bound in a linen shroud over his face, probably going to die again because he's going to suffocate if they don't go over and get this off of him. His feet bound, his hands bound, probably smelled crazy with all of the oils and spices that were poured over him. This is, this is a picture of a more perfect resurrection in Jesus Christ. He didn't, Jesus didn't need anyone to open up the tomb for him. He didn't need to be unbound from his grave clothes. This is the message from the angel. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Mark here stresses the identity of Jesus. This is not the wrong tomb. This is Jesus, that Jesus of Nazareth, the one that you saw crucified two days ago, 
The same Jesus. This was his tomb. And he's not here. He has risen. In the Greek, this is one word, and it's in the passive aorist tense. I hate saying likely a better translation because I don't want to question translators. They're much more affluent in Greek than me. I just read commentaries and do some word studies. Um, But if I can say that, a better translation uh, is he has been raised in the passive tense. But this begs the question, who raised Jesus from the dead? Jesus said in John chapter 10 that he is the good shepherd, that he lays down his life for the sheep, and that he also has the power to raise again. 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Father is involved here, which is also linked to our hope and our future resurrection. The Spirit gets involved here. Romans chapter 8, a mighty passage for the Christian in their walk. Romans chapter 8. In verse 10 says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This act of raising Jesus from the dead is Trinitarian. It is God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in their divine will and purpose and providence raised Jesus Christ from the dead, brought life where there was no life. This should harken back to creation in Genesis 1 as we think about this. The Father, through the Word, spoke creation into existence, and the Spirit hovered over the waters. Our great God, Father, Son, and Spirit brought about creation and is bringing about new life of which Jesus is the first fruits. This angel said this, go tell the disciples, and then parentheses almost, and Peter. That's a powerful moment. Don't let that go by without taking notice. They were to go and see the disciples, or he was going to go and meet the disciples, but also Peter. We know that the gospel according to Mark is essentially Peter's gospel written by the hand of John Mark, who was following him around on his preaching tours, if you will. And so you can imagine that Mark has heard this story probably multiple times, and it probably went something like this. Peter would say, and then he told the women, go get the disciples, and then 
tell Peter also to go to Galilee. Because that one guy who denied you three times, who looked at you in the eye, the one who always has his foot in his mouth, the one who thinks or acts before thinking, there is hope for him. I'm sure that he was very excited to add that in to his testimony. And so Mark adds it here. What a great encouragement that should be for us as believers. That it's not just the pastor who Jesus is going to come to see. It's going to be not just these people that are up on a pedestal or these people that we think that are the perfect Christians. It is those who have failed but put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus told Peter and the disciples over and over again that he would die and that he would rise. Turn to Mark chapter 8. Quickly, we're going to look at a couple of examples of this. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. This is just after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. I underlined that in my Bible. And he said this plainly. This was not some allegorical tale He told them plainly, I am going to die and I am going to rise again. I'm not going to to rise allegorically in your heart that you need to start doing ethical things and living existentially. I'm going to physically die and physically rise. Chapter 9, verse 31, the next page over. This is after Jesus heals the boy with an unclean spirit. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. Chapter 10 Verse 33 through 34 is after Jesus' encounter with the rich young man. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen, saying, See, we were going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over, and the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. You know, we look back at Peter and we say, well, how did you not get this? We wouldn't have got it. Only through the power of the Holy Spirit do we actually 
understand and know and can apply these truths. But Peter did finally start to get it. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Right after Jesus' ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, verse 22, Peter says this in his word, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, that Jesus, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Moving over to verse 36, let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ and this Jesus whom you crucified. If there's hope for Peter, there's certainly hope for us in the power of the Spirit. Amen. This angel told the women to go tell the apostles and Peter to go to Galilee because he'll be there. I've been asking myself all week long and thinking about this, and I, I don't think that it's that hard of a thing to understand, but just something I've been thinking about because the Bible isn't specific about it, and that's why did they have to go to Galilee. Um, in Mark 14, 28, Jesus said that after I rise to go to Galilee, and then I've been asking, why did they have to go to Galilee? Matthew throws it in there. Luke throws it in there. Um, we know that there is a special place in the heart for at least some of the disciples, that Galilee, this is where Jesus had called them to, as Peter was a fisherman there in his early ministry. But why Galilee? Why couldn't they just stay there in Jerusalem and Jesus appeared to them. He did have to appear to them there because they didn't go to Galilee. They didn't do as they were told. It took them several days, if not weeks, to finally make it there. But the Gospels themselves, we've, we've mentioned it in these last accounts of Jesus' foretelling of his death, is all movement to Jerusalem. And any scholar or any Bible student will tell you where we are in a gospel based on Jesus' relation to Jerusalem and going up to Jerusalem. We know the women followed him to Jerusalem. He was going to Jerusalem because that was his, that was the design, that was the plan. He was going into Jerusalem to accomplish a task. He walked in as a king, not a earthly king in a sense that the Jews were looking for, but he walked in, rode in on a donkey, was hung on a cross with a sign, King of the Jews. He accomplished the task of sacrifice. He went in as our priest. He went in as our king, and he accomplished the task. Even in Acts 1, the apostles still don't quite get it. They're asking, are you at now at this time going to set up the kingdom? Are you going to go 
essentially, and sit on the throne in Jerusalem and rule over the nations. It's as if Jesus is saying, boys, you haven't seen anything yet. They're going to Galilee, and they're going to spread the gospel throughout the earth where all tongues, all tribes will confess Jesus to be the Christ, whether it is that they believe in him or whether it will be at some time in the future where they are destined for torment and punishment. But the old is, has been stripped away. They are now going to Galilee. The women went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now we have to ask ourselves, why does this gospel end like this? Why does it end so abruptly? I realize that there are brackets there likely in your Bible and a ending that was most likely late, written at a later time. It's not in the earlier manuscripts. Did John Mark pass away? Did he not get a chance to finish his gospel? Did he not write a good ending? Did he not write the fairy tale Disney ending? I don't think that that is true. Uh, is this accidental? Is it purposeful? I think that it's quite fitting, especially noting how the gospel begins so abruptly. It ends on a statement of fear that the women were afraid. This has been a common theme in the gospel according to Mark. In Mark chapter 4, the disciples were afraid in the boat. In chapter 5, the people were afraid of the demon possession that Jesus cast out the demons of legion and they went into the pigs and went over the cliff. The people were afraid. The woman was afraid when she encountered Jesus and touched him. Then power went out and her discharge dried up. The disciples were afraid when Jesus walked on water, thinking that he was a ghost. Peter was afraid at the transfiguration when he said, Lord, maybe we should just set up some tents because he was afraid he didn't know what to say and nervous. This is a common theme throughout the book. And this feeling of fear each time, and I think especially now here at this abrupt end of the gospel, is leading the reader and those that were historically involved to an opportunity of exercising great faith. And so as we begin to end this gospel this morning, I want to ask you this. Um, have you come to a proper and right fear of the Lord and who he is? And what are you going to do with it? Who are you going to declare the Lord to be? Who are you going to declare Jesus to be? Are you, along with the witnesses in Mark's gospel, going to declare him to be the Son of God? The end of Mark so abruptly points back to the beginning. The beginning starts the gospel according to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, declaring him on the first sentence that he is the Son of God. 
then moves down to the Father, declaring Him to be His Son in whom He's well pleased in His baptism. He's declared to be the Son of God by demons as He is casting them out. He's declared to be the Christ by Peter at the climax of the book in chapter 8. He's declared to be the Son of God by the centurion at the cross. And so we're left with this question, who do you declare him to be? Because the ultimate declaration of him being the Son of God is the resurrection itself. If he did not rise, all of these declaratives would be in vain. They would be pointless. They would be useless. But we know that Jesus has raised from the dead And he's declared to be the Son of God in his resurrection. Romans 1 says this, if you'll turn there quickly. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection. This is how we know and we can have certain certainty that he is the Son of God. It is through his resurrection that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. It is through his resurrection that we are justified, Romans 4. And it is through his resurrection that we have a living hope. This applies to us in so many ways, and we can't exhaust it this morning. Death is a certainty for all of us. Some of us are closer to death than others. It's just a fact of life. But we can be certain that we will live again through Christ. Jesus says that I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I love that scripture includes that. Do you believe this? The end of Mark truly points back to the beginning. And we as a church, who are we going to say that Jesus is? And I pray that it will be the risen Son of God in power and glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book. We thank you that we have a living hope in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. May we be a grateful people, uh, grateful for your word and the opportunity that we can be here and learn from it. Lord, you are worthy of all praise. You have done so much for us. We thank you for this good news of Jesus Christ, our King, our Priest, our Lord. We ask that we would be conformed to your word and to your will. 
Thank you for this church um, and the love we have for each other in Christ. That we, may we spur each other on each and every day to a greater Christian walk. We thank you now, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.